0: Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you all here. Welcome to those who are here and present, and uh, those of you who are online, the crowd keeps getting a little bit bigger every week, which is great, and we're obviously thankful for the loosening restrictions. Um, Before I start the sermon today, I just wanted to point out, um, the finance team posted this week, sent out a message to everybody on the realm, Uh, with an update from our 2020 finances. And um, the general giving over the course of the year just pretty much stayed level with uh, 2019, I think it was a 0.7% increase or something like that. So we were encouraged with that, but what what was the most encouraging on the report was in addition to the regular giving and the meeting of our regular needs, our staff and our rentals and all the equipment and everything we do, um, our giving to help others uh, was the highest it's ever been at $250,000. That didn't include the building fund. Another 50 was given to the building fund. So 250000 went out, which is over 60% of the amount of our general budget um, that went out to the transition home and... Uh, addiction ministries with Twin Cities ministries, um, we supported uh, somewhere around 130, 135 families, church planting families in northern India, and for the majority of those families, out of the I think it was eight months, April through December, that was their source of income. Um, we we gave thirty thousand to uh, the efforts in the Twin Cities to help. Uh, churches of color that were uh, hit with uh, COVID in in some serious ways, Uh, and to the Man Up Club, which is working with uh, uh, black youth in the city to help them uh, complete high school, uh, get some sort of uh, vocational training or college, and then keep them out of the cycle of, of crime and incarceration. Uh, and a number of other things. A lot of money went towards needs uh, right here in the church that folks had and then other needs in our neighborhoods. Again, all totaling about $250,000. So in the midst of a, a challenging year for a, a lot of people financially, we not only God not only provided for us to meet the needs of our church, but substantially provided for us to meet the needs of others. And so I just want to give thanks uh, to the Lord for... Uh, generously providing uh, from the work of our hands, not only for ourselves, but for the benefit of others. So we're thankful to him, and I'm thankful to him for the the generosity that the church uh, demonstrated throughout this year. So just, again, really thankful and and praising God for that. So we are in a 13-week series on the mission of the church. We're dividing the series up into three sections, Bible, culture, and strategy, and so we're in our third week on, on on Bible, and the last couple of weeks we've looked at the Gospel of Luke, we've looked at the book of Acts, both were written by Luke for one specific purpose, uh, to write the story that connected the Old Testament and its promise of a Messiah, a Messiah who would be king, that's what Messiah Christ means, and the anointed one, he would be the savior of not only... Israel and its writings from the Jewish scriptures, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings, Jesus didn't just come for uh, the Jews. He came through the Jews to be a blessing to the world. So the Gospel of Luke is the story of how Jesus fulfilled uh, those promises in the Jewish Old Testament. Um, And then the book of Acts, as we saw last week, is the story of of the building of the foundations for the church, for the church. And so we saw that that the Spirit was working. So Jesus left and sent His Spirit, and the Spirit now is at work to spread the gospel of the coming King, the Savior of the world, the author of life, Him who who died on the cross uh, for our sins, but also to defeat death in His resurrection. And so that is the, the message that Jesus once proclaimed to the world the Messiah has come, death has been defeated. A a full and beautiful life, which was imaged in the transfiguration, is possible for everyone who believes in this Messiah. And then Jesus said, disciples, it's your responsibility to take that message to the world. So the book of Acts is about the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ going to the nations in the power of the Holy Spirit by his by his disciples. And and the other thing that we see as the book of Acts unfolds is that as the gospel advanced and people believed, churches were started. Churches were started to be witnesses of this kingdom, witnesses of the gospel in the the cities and towns and nations that they were planted in. And so now we come to the question, what does it mean to live as a church? I've got a, a friend who's he's an author as well He's a pastor and some of you have met him his name is Drew Dodson. he's one of our uh, one of the leaders that came up and commended our first team of elders in in uh, 2011 uh, he wrote a book called Kingdom Outposts that's what he likes to call churches they are outposts of the kingdom of god and so the question we now have excuse me these things the question we now have is what does it mean for the church, for local churches, to be these kingdom outposts? What is life supposed to be like in the world for these people who have believed in the gospel and what are they called to? How what kind of a life are they called to live? And one of the things that um, one of the things that, that the scriptures um, and particularly the book of Titus uh, is concerned about is our impression in the world. How do people not in the gospel perceive and view those who are in the gospel? When we first moved up here in 2007, there was a book that was published that same year called Unchristian by David Kinneman and, and Gabe Lyons, and it was a uh, it was a notable book in a lot of ways, uh, got a lot of attention at the time, both within Christianity and, and outside of it, uh, and basically it was a summary of how outsiders perceived Christians in America. And there were six um, conclusions that their reviews and research and study came to about how the world perceived Christians. The first one was that Christians are pretty hypocritical. In that they're not they don't live in a way that's consistent with what they teach. The second one was that they seem really over overly concerned with getting people saved in contrast to helping meet the real needs that people have. The third one was that they are perceived to be anti-homosexual. Which, which means that there's an elevation given to the sin of sexual immorality, to the sin of homosexuality, that puts it outside of the, of the grace of God um, and permits these judgmental, critical attitudes towards those who are engaged in homosexuality. The fourth one, too sheltered. They seem to be distant from the realities and the suffering of the world, as well as as kind of um, not really interested or, or per, per in pursuit of some of the more intellectual aspects of of the world and culture. The fifth was that it was too political. They perceived Christianity longing to use the power base of law and government and politics as the means through which the Christian agenda would pursue. And the final one was too judgmental, in that it lacked the grace and had condemning attitudes. And, and you know, the, the, the thing about judgmentalism, being judgmental... Um, you can hold to a conviction about what is right and what is wrong and what you believe should be the norm. You can hold that in a way that is gracious and kind, or you can hold it in a way where the people around you that don't agree with you feel your judgment. And it's this place of condemnation um, that doesn't allow for the possibility of growth and grace. So that was 14 years ago. That was 14 years ago. And it was at the time we started this church. And um, I don't think that we can say that things have changed and maybe they've even gotten worse. I I was having a recent conversation. So, present time, not 14 years ago, but just the last few weeks, I've had some conversations with my neighbors. And I can't remember. Oh, it was it was a conversation just surrounding um, um, the the funeral service that we had for for Ivy, and um, we were we were talking just about perceptions of the afterlife, and and we got onto the question of what about little babies. And um, I was able to explain um, the Christian perspective towards a situation like that. And, and then he explained some of his perceptions and then used this phrase, um, he said, shamanistic faiths seem to have more of an explanatory perspective, whereas they're just trying to explain why things happen, and they put faith and religious symbolism um, around what goes on in the world. And then he said the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, uh, have more of a controlling emphasis and I and I was just struck by that. And so we had a conversation over text messaging, and then later in person. Um, and then, actually, just this just in the last, last this last week, um, we were talking about it again. And then um, I made this statement, and I can't remember the exact context in the conversation, but I made a statement um, that was that, that said that the that the central ethic of christianity is willingly suffering for the good of other people and i was surprised by their very quick and but it was brief response that took them by surprise like it was an unexpected statement for them to hear about christianity that the central that christianity's central ethic is one of willingly suffering for the good of others and, and they took it as a surprise because I think that that's not what their perception is. And it's, it's, and, and over the years, I've had a lot of conversations with people, and, I've, and I read book reviews of this book that was published in 2007, and what I have seen is that it's quick for Christians to dismiss how the world views them. You know, it, clearly, throughout the Gospels, Jesus says, you know, the world is going to hate you because it hated me, right? And so there's a, a an effort that we have to be quick towards explaining why outsiders don't like us. But throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New, uh, and even in the life of Jesus, there is a concern. The Scriptures demonstrate And teach that the world should perceive an attractiveness in us. They should perceive um, some good. They may not agree doctrinally with us, but they should see that our lives have some characteristics about them that are pleasant and beautiful. And that's a consistent biblical teaching. And so we have to deal with that. We have to recognize that that is a biblical intent. The fact that the world is going to hate us doesn't negate the biblical texts that says our lives should be attractive. And this is a big concern in the book of Titus. And so Titus is really, um, you know, in terms of this question, what should churches be like? So Titus and Paul had spent some time Going around the island of Crete and preaching the gospel and starting churches. For some reason, Paul had to leave. And so he wrote the letter to Titus to say, okay, here's what these churches should, here's how these churches should be structured, here's the lifestyle that they should have, um, and here are the reasons for it. And so Titus is only three chapters, and it's extremely focused on the foundational elements. And so it's a perfect book to answer the question. What should churches be about and why? And so the first two chapters deal with um, structuring the church and lifestyles in the church, how we are to conduct ourselves as individuals, how we are to conduct ourselves as families and as an entire church. That's what the first two chapters are about. That's the, that's the homework and the handouts for your house church meetings. Chapter three is what are instructions that are given to us about how to live life in the world, and why. And so that's what Andrew read earlier. And so there's really two sets of instructions. The first two verses give us instruction on how to conduct ourselves with government officials and any authority in our lives. Really, people of authority. Two verses. So the first instruction, or the first thing I want to say, excuse me, is that the term refers to people, not positions, not an office. It's it's common for us to say, regardless of which side of the political spectrum that we are on, that we respect the office, you know, or the position of president, but not necessarily the person. Well... um, Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you perceive it, that's not how the text is written. The text literally is referring to the people. The text is referring to the people. We cannot make the distinction between the person and the office. The instruction then that comes is that we are to be submissive, and this deals with an attitude, All right. Now, the word "submit" literally means to—I mean, it's it's a Latin term. It's from the Greek Greek language, and it really means to put your mission, okay, which is the submit. Okay. So this word "mit," I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it's it's a critical word in our culture because of our resistance as Americans to any sort of authority. um, To put your mission underneath that of another. That's what, literally what the word submission means. And so in regard to, to government officials, their mission is to, from a biblical kingdom of God standpoint, they have been given the responsibility to order society in such a way, regardless of whatever group social grouping that we're talking about. If it's government authorities, obviously there's many cities, counties, states, nations, um, but it could just be... Um, it could just be our, our workplace, the authorities. and Those people of authority have a responsibility to maintain an order so that the, that the mission and objectives of that social grouping are accomplished for the betterment of the people involved and, and for the betterment of the people that they serve. That's the general idea behind why you need authorities. And so Christians are to orient themselves in their attitudes in a submissive way, which means that we are to try to make... Uh, the authority successful in the carrying out of their work to care for and make successful this social grouping, all right? That should be our orientation. So we may not necessarily agree all the time with our government authorities, but we need to maintain an attitude of submission to see that, you know, I don't necessarily agree with you, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make what you're trying to do successful, so in any authority dynamic, that's the attitude of, of submission. The, and, and the command to be submissive isn't needed unless you disagree, right? <laughs> if, if we fully agree and want to get on board with, with people, we, we don't need to be submissive because we're already submissive. The command to submit means that the t- our tendency is going to be to resist authorities in our lives. And so that deals with our attitudes. The second instruction says to obey. That is dealing with our actual actions, our speech, and our what we do. So it's not an option to disobey. And really what we, we need to understand that whatever social grouping or dominion, okay, when I say dominion, that could be... A city, a county, or state, or a nation. It's a sphere of authority. Whatever dominion that we are in, we need to see that we are ultimately in the dominion of the kingdom of God. See, Jesus, when he came, says, the kingdom has come. The kingdom has come, and when he resurrected from the dead and ascended, he ascended to a throne. And every dominion on this earth is now under his feet. And so we have to see that the largest dominion that we serve under is the dominion through which Jesus is ruling. And so these instructions come to us as citizens in his kingdom. And within that kingdom, we have all these other little dominions. Our highest priority is to his dominion. Now, there are going to be times, just as we see in the New Testament, where the various authorities in our lives may give us commands and instructions to disobey God, and that's when we have to respond like the apostles did to the to the rulers in Israel: uh, "Shall we obey you or shall we obey God?" All right, we're not going to disobey God, is what they said, and then they were beaten and jailed, and then they praised the Lord for having been for having uh, uh, for suffering in the way Jesus did. They praise God for that. And so there, there may be times where we have to do that. Um, but our general orientation outside of those contexts are, is, is one of submissiveness and obedience. And that's under Jesus' rule. The third instruction is that we are ready for every good work. And so this, was an, this, this command is within the context of these spheres of authority Um, which means that we are to contribute to the dominions that we are living in. This has always been the case. When, When Israel was taken into exile, into Babylon, God told them, seek the welfare of the city. Yes, they laid siege to your city. Yes, they killed your people. Yes, they destroyed your city and the temple of God. Yes, they exiled you to a foreign nation. Still, seek its welfare plant gardens, build houses, get married, and pray for the welfare of the city. So that is to be our calling here. So he says when we are ready to be ready for every good work, we are to look into this world and to see what good can we engage in that makes our authorities' efforts more successful. How can we bring peace to this city? How can we bring welfare to this city? How can we build up education and income and all of the things that go into the flourishing of people, what can we do to contribute? What can we do to contribute? This is a big part of what it means to be a church in the kingdom of the world, under the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And the kingdom of God, historically, has manifested its power and its life and its truth in the darkest and most oppressive of places. Which is why, to make this point, Jesus came to earth, God into a human being, during one of the most oppressive and violent times under the most violent and oppressive of rules in all of human history. The crucifixion is considered historically the worst way to die ever. That's why Jesus came at that time. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead in both defiance of Israel's rulers and in defiance of Rome, the global empire, demonstrated that the kingdom of God is not going to be held down. Wherever we're at and whatever we're doing and whatever type of oppressive leadership we may see ourselves under, Living according to the kingdom of God is always going to produce truth and light and beauty. Just like Paul and Silas last week in the book of Acts we saw, they were beaten, bloodied illegally, didn't claim their rights, were put in the stocks in basically solitary confinement in jail, and they sang and worshipped and prayed. And it completely changed the spirit of that prison. We have an idolatry, and we're going to deal with this, we're going to deal with this uh, in specific messages. We're going to look at what happens when Christianity becomes too tied to uh, Christian progressive ideas, Christian progressive political ideas, and what happens when it's too tied to uh, conservative ideals. We're going to look at Christian nationalism. we're going to look at Christian progressivism and see where there are challenges. But, but it, is, it is always a huge temptation for the people of God to ally themselves with political efforts. Political efforts. Whether it's to the left or to the right. And if, if the right is in power and you're aligning yourself with to the, to the left, it's a great temptation to not be submissive and to disrespect and disobey the government. If you're allied with the, the progressives and you, or, and they're in power, then the, then, then the right are going to be critical and temptation to be uh, not submissive and disrespectful and to disobey. That has always been the challenge, which is why these instructions are in Scripture. It is very tempting for us to become idolatrous with forms of government or with our political ideas or with our political philosophies. Now, what I am not saying... I, there are principles in Scripture that, if followed, lead to good government. But the only government in Scripture that is biblical in terms of a government that is taught and proscribed is the government of the kingdom of God under the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only government. We justify ourselves when we see government more contrary to our founders, and we criticize or are disrespectful. We need to see that the kingdom has authority. The kingdom has authority over our governments, and that it is the kingdom of God that we are called to emulate here on this earth. Not a conservative or liberal, progressive or right wing. What socialism or capitalism, right? we cannot ally ourselves with these philosophies. We may hold to some of them in terms of what we believe to be a better form of government, but those things do not take um, preference over what it means to, for us to live as citizens in the kingdom of God. James Davidson Hunter in his book, To Change the World, which is... it's. I can't remember maybe it might be it might be 8 or 10 years old now it's a great book we're going to spend a little bit more time with it in a few weeks and he sees he sees three ways that Christians ally themselves with with politics in America there's the there's the progressive approach the right conservative approach and then there's those who would say Uh, to ally yourself with anything that goes on in American government or economic structure is completely sinful and evil, and you need to pull out. So he deals with those three, but he says this, Speaking as a Christian myself, contemporary Christian understandings of power and politics. So he is a a distinguished professor of culture, religion, and social theory at the University of Virginia. He's highly respected in both the secular and Christian worlds. He says, speaking as a Christian myself, contemporary Christian understandings of power and politics are a very large part of what has made contemporary Christianity in America, and I get this, appalling, irrelevant, and ineffective. Part and parcel of the worst elements of our late modern culture today rather than a healthy alternative to it. So what he's saying is this. Of all of the ways I've seen contemporary Christianity in America try to engage the culture, its perspectives of power and politics and its approaches have made our culture worse rather than creating a healthy and attractive alternative to it. That's a pretty strong thing. So we'll spend more time on that. In a few weeks, we're going to look at each of those ways. So that's his instruction concerning authorities. Now, his conduct concerning everyone, he says to speak evil of no one. Because this is just two verses. (laughs) Two verses. I mean, you can stop here at speak evil of no one, and you're just like, okay. Who of us can say we apply that teaching perfectly? None of us can. Speak evil of no one. We speak evil of people because we're trying to put ourselves over them, maybe revenge, trying to get ahead. It never comes off as generous or kind. It always comes off as weakness. But you know what? We do it. Speak evil of no one. Avoid fighting. Avoid quarreling. Second instruction. And and sometimes we use our theological positions as an excuse for engaging in fighting and quarreling. That's not what the Bible was written for. It's not, it wasn't written so that we can have theological debates. It was written to create lives of people that know and honor and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Scriptures say that those who are who are oftentimes in fights and quarrels, and any of us that are engaged in fighting and quarreling are being governed by the flesh, not by the Holy Spirit. There are fleshly passions and lusts and desires that work within us which is why we get into fights third be gentle which means to be forbearing and gracious in response to those who may hurt or offend you be gentle kindness and compassion rather than retribution or speaking evil proverbs teaches us to that it's to a person's glory to overlook an offense that's what he's commanding here Show perfect courtesy, the fourth instruction, which means that our character should be one literally of mild and gentle friendliness. Like, people should feel like you want to be their friends when they're interacting with us. People should feel care and warmth. Again, these are just two verses. And the weight of those two verses is, is monumental. And so we have to, when, we, when we, we go into these instructions, we see this burden, especially this is our conduct in the world to authorities that oftentimes, maybe even more often than not, don't deserve our respect or our obedience, either in their ideas or their, their actions and behaviors. So how are we to live this kind of life? And I think this is—I think this is one of the uh, th- this passage in the way that it sets itself up for communicating the power of the gospel that is to undergird our behavior. I think is just beautiful. So Paul, in this, anticipating probably, how are we supposed to live like this? Paul, he goes right into the explanation. For we ourselves were once foolish. We ourselves were once disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. How does Paul expect us to follow these instructions? The first thing we need to do is to recognize that we are no better than anybody else. It starts with this orientation of humility. If we see ourselves as just like those who are still stuck in their sin, because we are, we are, we are no better than others. And it seems to be a great temptation for those of us who claim to know God. You see it in you see it in Israel, in the in the the gospels around Jesus. You see it in the epistles. There is a great in the book of Acts. There's a great temptation for those of us who claim to know God to over time get to this point where we think we're in some sort of elevated place. We see ourselves as better than others. We see ourselves in a, as, as privileged. We see ourselves in a higher status. And that temptation is what we've got to fight. And so, this attitude that we ourselves were just like them. And then he continues But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of our works done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So what happens when we set ourselves above other people is that we see that our goodness, righteousness is the biblical term, we see that our goodness is something that we have accomplished and acquired. We don't see that our goodness is 100% a gift of God to us through the person of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. That's what happened. We, we begin to think that we are, we are, there's something about us that is good. It was the Holy Spirit that made us new. So yeah, we may have changed morally. We may have changed our thinking. We may have a a, a life now that is effective and beautiful rather than one enslaved to sin. But those are all things that the Holy Spirit has done. We can't claim that. I mean, if I think back to where I would have gone if my trajectory would have been the same and not come to know Christ in my late teens, I could see where I would go, and it would be destructive, and it would be ugly, and it would be abusive, and I would be a very angry person. The power to do these commands is through the Holy Spirit when we have the attitude and mindset. And this is the intention of the entire book of Galatians. If you live by the flesh, which is the belief that there's something good you have and are, then you're always going to be in this pursuit of self-righteousness. If you live by the Spirit, then you're always going to be in a place of recognizing That your righteousness and goodness comes from Jesus Christ, and then with that mindset of faith, because there's always temptations that come against our sense of righteousness, right? Our sense of identity. So what do we do when we're feeling insecure, lonely, afraid, ashamed, guilty, whatever? If we make our own efforts to try to build up our sense of goodness, rather than just tell ourselves the truth about who we are in Jesus Christ, that way leads to the flesh, this way leads to the spirit. The Spirit is going to work when we put our identity and the righteousness of God in us through Christ. Our sense of goodness comes from Christ. We are saved not by our good works. We are saved by God's mercy in order to engage in good works, which is why the book of Titus and all three of its short chapters emphasizes that the fruit of what we are to be as Christians is good works, more so than any of other Paul's books this is one of his smallest but it mentions that our lives should be characterized by good works more than any of the other uh, other books in conclusion he says insist on these things insist on the gospel and insist on us being engaged in good works for the benefit of others there's good works in our church, there's good works. In our families, there's good works. In the spheres of authorities that we're in, there's good works. In our city, in our nation, we are to see what we can be about, just like Jesus did, for the benefit of other people, even if it means our suffering. He says, "Give serious consideration to the doing of good deeds and good works." He says, "Don't quit fighting with people over theological points." Quit rebelling against the government. Quit judging other people. Quit engaging in all sorts of quarreling and fighting and worrying about your status or your pedigree or your ethnicity. These are all things that we use to build up ourselves. He says they are unprofitable and ineffective and worthless. And then to conclude the book, anybody that doesn't agree with these teachings and becomes divisive, warn them twice, And then have nothing else to do with them, which means they are, the church is called to disassociate with them. Because that spirit will lead, like Jesus said, a little leaven will affect the entire lump of dough. And so this has to be our understanding of what we need to live like in the world. This is what Jesus wants us to appear like in the world. And if, and if things come in and pull us off of this mission, it will, ruin, it will ruin our witness to the world. And I think that that's where a lot of American Christianity has come. Let me pray. Lord God, we, uh, we uh, really appreciate the brevity of the book of Titus and the focus that it has on the core things that we need to be about. And so, Lord God, I pray, we pray as a church, that you would help us to powerfully hold tight to the righteousness of God in us through the gospel, through your grace and mercy, and so that we are energized by the power of the Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That is the power that we want, Lord God, so that we can engage this world and engage our families, and engage our church, and engage all of our lives with good works that are reflective of the Holy Spirit and not works that seem to just want to build ourselves up. And that's what we as a church, Lord God, want to be about. And we're thankful, Lord, for this work that you've done in us uh, in, in seeing how you have used us to generously bless us over this and to bless others over this past, this past year. So God, we, we thank you for what you've done. We ask that you would continue to do it more. In your son's name, amen.